This is Can I Laugh on Your Shoulder. Hey, welcome to Can I Laugh on Your Shoulder. I'm Molly Stillman, and this is a podcast where I get to sit down with a different guest each week and have raw, funny, often brutally honest conversations about the things that matter most, our faith, business, life, and everything in between, where we each learn how to be good stewards of the things we've been entrusted with, even our stories, and how we can use those things to serve others and leave our families, our friendships, and our communities a little better than we found them. I want to create a space where people are unafraid to be themselves and unafraid to ask the questions the rest of us are thinking. My goal is to make you laugh, cry, and laugh till you cry. My guest this week is Inez Ribostello. A native of Eastern North Carolina, Inez got her start in the world of food and wine after moving to New York City to pursue a career in cooking. Her wine career took a huge leap forward when she became an assistant cellar master at the renowned World Trade Center restaurant, Windows on the World. Soon after, she was promoted to beverage director, putting her in the position of wine buyer for the largest grossing restaurant in North America. Windows on the World was the restaurant on the very top floor of Tower One of World Trade Center. When the terrorist attacks on September 11, 2001 happened, she happened to be in North Carolina just having celebrated her sister's wedding. She lost friends, colleagues, and her job in the terrorist attacks, and she had to face her future. She chose to throw herself into her work and took the position of beverage director for Bluefin Restaurant in the W Hotel in Times Square. Fast forward a few years, she eventually moved back home to Tarboro and started Tarboro Brewing Company, a microbrewery that began brewing in February of 2016. In September of 2021, Inez released her self-published memoir, Life After Windows, a book she had been working on for the past 20 years. You are going to be blown away by Inez's story. I was just gripped listening to her share her experience and her point of view of that day that so many of us will remember for our entire lives. She's also just hilarious and a really incredible person and her story is really powerful. So without further ado, let's get on to my conversation with Inez Ribostello. Inez, welcome to the show. I am really happy to have you for many, many reasons, but I just welcome. I'm so excited about this. Oh, thank you, Molly. I'm so excited to be here. So before I have you give us the Inez 101, I wanted to share with the audience uh, something I just shared with you before we started recording, because I think it's always so fun when uh, you randomly will connect with somebody over like something very weird. And um, so I have an issue with digital clutter and I don't delete anything. (laughs) And um, I mean, so much so that I've been going through, um, which we'll talk about this in a minute. I'm so I'm writing a memoir right now. And uh, you obviously wrote a memoir, which we're going to talk about. But in writing the memoir, it's been very helpful that I don't delete anything. (laughs) So I find all this stuff. Anyway, so I was searching your name in my email for something. And you and I were like both CC'd on an email in January of 2012. So then we realized we had a common friend. And I just thought that was really interesting. And then also, I just also have to like address this at the beginning. I learned that your cousin is Penn Holderness. <laughs> yes. Claim to fame. That's your claim. Yeah. <laughs> That's your claim to fame. Yeah. I don't know. I think you have a whole lot more to do, but I just think it's really funny that I was Googling it. And then I saw something about like your your maiden name being Holderness. And I was like, there has to be a connection here because I don't feel like Holderness is just a super common 
North Carolina last name. <laughs> right, right. Or, or anywhere. Last or name. anywhere. Anywhere. But um, did, when you were growing up, did you say hold or die? You know what? I don't think we did. What we said was, and this is, I'm giving away passwords here, but we said Sess and Redlow because that's how you say Holderness backwards. Oh. So that was kind of our code where my dad had made it up. But yeah, um, Penn's dad is my was my dad's older brother. And oh. so anyway, we, th- there were 12 cousins and we got together every summer for two weeks. Oh. And so our, our cousins are a pretty close knit group. Close knit cousins. I love it. Yeah. I have, see, I love my cousins too. I have a lot of cousins on my dad's side of the family because my dad, was one of five Irish Catholics. So there's just all of the children. Um, (laughs) But sadly, they all live like all over the country. So they just very much, my dad and his sisters all grew up in Cleveland. And then once, like nobody really stays in Cleveland anymore. And so, because you know, it's Cleveland, love Cleveland, big fan of Cleveland. Uh, But everybody left Cleveland and then eventually the kids all went. So I mean, I have cousins in like Wyoming, Montana, all the way to Vermont. So like, None of us, none of us are close, but when we do get together, it's like immediately right back to where we were. But anyway, no time has passed. I just enjoy that, that, that here we are. We were CC'd on emails together back in 2012 and your cousins with pen holderness. I think that's real fun. Um, okay. But we want to know who you are, Inez, other than the fact that you and I were CC'd on emails together. So uh, give us the Inez 101. So tell us who you are, what you do, how you got to where you are today. Oh, gosh. Well, I'm Inez, and most people in Tarboro, where I live and where I'm from, eastern North Carolina, call me Iny. Iny. Um, but when I moved to New York, they everybody's like, ooh, Iny, do you have another name? <laughs> and uh, so I said, well, my real name's Inez. And so they said, oh, that's what we will call you. So I always, you know, I know, like, my friends from 22 and younger are the Iny friends and like the 23 and older are the Inez friends. <laughs> um, but some of my friends recently who called me Inez, they're like, we want to feel really close to you. Can we call you Iny? I'm like, yeah, but I mean, <laughs> you're close to me no matter what you call me. I know. Um, but yeah, born and raised in Tarboro, which is a small town, a little less than 11,000. Um, went to school in Chapel Hill and then moved to New York immediately after to go to culinary school. And while I was in school, I found a part-time job at a wine shop, realized I like to drink more than I like to cook and um, found out. And no one had ever told me that you could make a career in wine. Um, was super lucky enough to land a job as an assistant seller master at Windows on the World on the top of One World Trade Center. And worked there from 98 to September 11, 2001, uh, moving up the ranks, eventually becoming beverage director. And then, you know, life turned upside down and had to, you know, regroup because I had said I was never leaving New York. I was never leaving this job and never say never, obviously, Molly. Um, But as much as I tried to fight it, I found my way back to Tarboro with um, my fiance, Stephen, who's from New York. We opened up a small restaurant in October of 2002. We just celebrated our 20-year birthday and then eventually opened up Tarboro Brewing Company in 2016, which is where I reside and spend all of my time. And then a year later, I opened up a little satellite spot on the Rocky Mount Mills campus called TBC West, um, 
which is actually the outpost of TBC where we do food. Um, so I've gone from, you know, my major in Chapel Hill is journalism, going from journalism <laughs> to cooking to wine and now almost exclusively beer and decided, um, you know, a couple years ago to release my memoir on the 20th anniversary of 9-11. And so released Life After Windows. Um, almost it's been over a year now. Wow. Um, OK, well, so go Tar Heels. Uh, but yeah. also, um, OK, this is going to be just like I, here's the, here's my approach to podcasting. OK, so I've been doing this for a minute now. It's been years. <laughs> and uh, my I just like to pretend like you and I are in person. We're just hanging out. So I'm going to do that. Like, wait a second. You're from Tarboro. Do you know? <laughs> this is what. OK, so if you're listening and you're not from the South, this is what we do when you're at a restaurant. You find out where somebody's from. You go, do you know, uh, especially when it's Eastern North Carolina or anyway. So my boss, my former boss at the radio station was from Tarboro and she always used to go back there. And I think she still goes back there pretty regularly. But her name's Zena. And it's a pretty like unique name. You know, Zena? Yes, I do. See? See, um, Bradshaw, Zena Bradshaw. Yep. Yep. Now she's yep. Almers um, or no, she's not. Not Almers. What's her last name now? Craft. Craft. But yeah. Anyway, I just love it because uh, it's like, I'm like, you're from Tarboro. You probably know Zena. Because it's also a very like, like y'all in Tarboro like to name your kids with Z's in their names. <laughs> like Inez, Zena. Anyway. Yeah. Uh, so uh, see well, this. My sister's name is Grizel. So see? yeah, maybe you're on the I I would love to know the percentage of people in Tarboro with the 11,000 population. How many of those 11,000 have a Z in their first name? I'm going to start noticing it, you know, like. <laughs> Seriously, I need somebody to do this research for me. This is life and death. <laughs> this is very important. I need to know. OK, so. All right. We've gotten that out of the way. All right. So let's obviously let's go back. In time. And uh, once again, so you're at Carolina, which also I think is funny. My husband went to Carolina and he was also a journalism major and does not do a job in journalism. <laughs> uh, so maybe, I think the I would love to know the percentage of people who graduated from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill with journalism degrees who don't do something in journalism. Yeah, <laughs> I know at least two um, in any event. So you went to Carolina, you leave and you end up in New York City, which, you know, coming from Tarboro, going to New York City, I, having been to New York City a lot and spent a lot of time there, it's a very different world. Was this something that like you had always kind of dreamed about when you were a kid was moving to New York City or what what drew you there? Yeah, no, I was, you know, really content on getting a ring at Carolina. <laughs> and, and, you were getting your MRS degree? Yeah, I, I did not have big plans for my life at all. But the person that I thought was going to give me a ring was moving to New York. So mm -hmm. I figured the best place to keep, keep pursuing that um, was to follow him. And, you know, ironically, I had moved to D.C. the summer after my sophomore year in college, uh, for a journalism internship at the United States Information Agency in the South American Network. And I lived, because it was an unpaid internship, I lived with a family um, who 
said, you know, you're more than welcome to be here, but, you know, we'd like for you to cook in exchange. And I grew up with a working mother, a working stepmother, and both of them equally did not love to cook. So we ate a lot of like casseroles with cream of mushroom soup in them. (laughs) We ate, you know, a lot of fast food, a lot of mama's pizza, golden corral, you name it. So I was like, Ooh, this could be interesting, but she gave me the joy of cooking cookbook and I fell in love hook, line and sinker. Mm. So that's how I decided that when I moved to New York, I'd go to culinary school. Um, and of course, cooking in someone's home is is very different than cooking on a line. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's that's how I got to New York. And I didn't expect to fall in love with New York. You know, in fact, once I got up there and fell in love with New York, I kind of fell out of love with the the guy I'd moved up there with because mm. he didn't love it as much as I did. Mm. Um so yeah, that's how that's how I got up there. But there was no like Hey, I dream of going to New York. When when we went up there for the first time in April of 98 to look at the cooking school, that was the first time I'd ever been north of the Mason-Dixon line. Oh, wow. 22 years old. And yeah. Yeah. So it's quite a bit of a culture shock for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, so you you know, you eventually you get to New York, you you fall in love with the city, which I love this. I love New York, too. And that was actually my dream for a really long time was to move to New York. Um, but I graduated from college in 2007. And so I entered like one of the most challenging job markets there was. And so I knew that I couldn't move up to New York without a job lined up. Like I just because I was like looking at real estate. I was looking at uh, I say real estate like I was 22 and (laughs) buying a penthouse on the Upper East Side. No, I was but I was like looking for apartments. I mean, in the I mean, the for anybody that knows like New York rent is astronomical. It is just Unre- uh, it's I don't know how anyone lives there unless you like work on Wall Street or you're famous because I mean it was like a 250 foot 250 square foot studio for four thousand dollars a month or something and it was just like wait what <laughs> anyway yeah. so out of control yeah it's out of control and so it's not like I had this like wad of cash that I could just like take and just anyway regardless. Um, so I, I didn't end up going, but I kept like hoping that I would get up there. And, um, but yeah, it's, it's really an amazing city. It's just, it's such a unique lifestyle and it's such a unique hub for culture and food and experiences. And there's just so many things about New York that are just very unique, (laughs) not something that you experience anywhere else. Um, yeah, my husband born and raised in North Carolina, uh, does not feel the same way about New York. He does not love New York, but yeah, my uh, husband's from New York and he doesn't feel that way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and now I live on a farm in central North Carolina. So, you know, it's basically the same thing as New York. Uh, okay. So you get up to New York, you fall in love with the city and at what point was were your eyes set on working at Windows on the World? And so for for people that don't know um, that, you know, maybe uh, had never, you know, are younger and never got to experience the World Trade Center or the or that restaurant. Um, I, I went to New York a lot as a kid. So I had been inside the World Trade Center. So I was familiar with Windows on the World. I didn't eat there, but I've been up to it. So at what point were you like, this is what I want to do? I want to work my way up the ranks. Like, how did you set your sights on that? 
So it was really shortly after I got there um, in uh, mid-August of 98, the New York Times dining out section did a, a cover piece on Andrea Emmer, who was the beverage director at the time and um, was one of a handful of women sommeliers, uh, master sommeliers. And um, I read that article and and was like, this is where I want to be. Mm-hmm. I don't know how I'm going to do it, but I'm. this is where I'm going to end up. It was almost more for her than Windows, you know, because she seemed like such a rock star. And so um, cold called her. She answered her office phone and uh, said, fax me your resume. <laughs> oh, faxes. Fax me. And, and uh, then didn't hear from her from you know that August date until like February 12th. And I had I had taken a job as a head reservationist. You know, I you know, again, to your point about New York being so expensive, I was living in a two bedroom apartment with five people living there, bunk beds. I mean, yeah. it, there was not an inch of room for anything. Yeah. And so five of us are sharing a, an apartment in Hell's Kitchen, which at that time was like they were trying to make get it up and coming. So it was one of the lesser expensive neighborhoods to live. But, um, you know, there was no time for me to just sit around and do other things once school ended and wait for windows. And so at this point, I'd gotten a, a salary job as a, as a reservationist for a three-star restaurant. And when they called and said, can you come in for the interview? It was not to work in wine. It was to be a hostess for the new restaurant they were opening. And you know, I give thanks to my dad. He said, just let them meet you, you know, get up there and, and talk to them, take, take whatever they offer you. And then, you know, move into wine and, and uh, thank, you know, thank God I went up there for the um, interview because when they came in, it was the entire beverage department. And I was like, what's happening? And they said, look, we know that you want to pursue wine. And um, while we called you up here for this hostess position, an assistant seller master resigned today. So would you like to interview for that position instead? And I was like, jackpot. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it was really shortly after I moved up to New York that I knew that's where I wanted to be. But it, it did take, you know, about six months before I actually got there. Yeah. And then you eventually got promoted and you worked your way up and you became head of the beverage department at Windows on the World. And so, again, for people that that aren't familiar, Windows on the World was just this beautiful restaurant that was on the top floor of Tower One, right? Yes. So Tower One, the World Trade Center. And it's just it was this very fancy dining restaurant. But, you know, you pay this premium because you're going all the way up to the top of the World Trade Center and then you have just windows everywhere. And you get to overlook you can see all three bridges. I mean, it's just the the views were beautiful. So you work your way up. Take us to September of 2001. So we obviously know what happened on September 11th, 2011, or excuse me, 2001. And we obviously know that you're here with us today. So take us to that time and, and why, why weren't you there that day? All of it. Yeah. So Labor Day weekend was the weekend before my sister got married. And I was going home for the first time in a while to be the maid of honor in her wedding. And um, so I was leaving Wednesday. I think it was the fifth. Yeah. And so I went into work on Labor Day and cleaned up the entire office. I mean, when you're working there, you were so in the throes. It was so busy, such high volume that like I 
would always go in on July 4th or Labor Day or Memorial Day when there were no like admin people. So I could get like stuff done that just didn't get done. Housekeeping. Right. So I cleaned up the entire office and there were files and photographs and, you know, you name it from 1976 when, you know, when it, when windows opened in its first incarnation. And so, um, getting ready for just making sure that everybody knew what they needed to do while I was gone and just tidying up. And so, um, went home, um, left everybody in charge. You know, one of the things that I'll never regret is that I I went and told everybody goodbye. And, um, then, you know, I attended my sister's wedding, had one of the best weekends of my life. And because I am from a blended family, you know, it was always, if you're with your dad's side for a little bit, then, you know, I need to be with my mom for a little bit too. And so the deal was that my mom was going to pick me up on Sunday morning and she and my sister and I were going to go to the mountains and spend two days. And so I was slated to fly home on Wednesday, September 12th. Um, And on the morning of September 11th, my mom came into the bedroom where we were staying. We were in the mountains and um, she was crying and, you know, I I thought something had happened to my grandmother and she just said, you know, come watch the television and just watched it unfold, um, you know, sitting in this living room, dialing, you know, my husband who was not answering his phone in his Jersey apartment calling the World Trade Center in my office where the two guys were working for me. And that was a busy signal. And just like, you know, you know, a state of complete confusion. And yeah, it wasn't until I actually Stephen answered and I found out that he was not there that I kind of like came back to earth. Mm. Um, but yeah, so that was that was that day I wanted to go home. So my mom and my sister and I got in the car and drove um, home to Tarboro. And from then, I just remember, you know, I didn't have a cell phone then. But when I got to my grandmother's house, you know, I was just using her phone to call people um, and and try to figure out where they were. And yeah, it's just a, you know one of those um one of those days that I, I never recall unless I'm doing something like this yeah because it was a it was a really uh pain like I, I think about that and if I was watching myself from an outer body I would just feel so sad for me because it was uh just such a painful painful day yeah I mean in the days after and the weeks and the months were painful but the the whole season after 9-11 was just it was just such a lonely kind of brutal uh time you know i i was seven uh, 16 i was 16 when september 11th happened and so at the time i feel like anybody who was eight or older like probably very vividly remembers i mean obviously i remember every last detail of the day um i lived and grew up uh about 20 minutes outside of washington dc and so a lot of my friends' parents worked in the Pentagon or worked nearby and in, in, in the city. So that was 
you know, all of a sudden now DC and the metro area around DC is completely on lockdown and nobody knows what to do. I mean, I remember by like third or fourth period, our teachers were just like, just if you have a car, leave, like, just go. I mean, like, <laughs> like at school, they were just like, don't sign out, like, just, just leave. I mean, I just, the chaos of it was just, if you can go home, go. Um, so all of us, like, especially because I was a new driver, like I just turned 16, you know, a couple weeks earlier. And so I'm just like, wait, I can just like walk out of school right now and like just go home and I'm not going to get in trouble. Um, Because, yeah, it's like that state of confusion. But ever since that day, I have thought so much and I don't know why this is, but I've thought so much about the people who should have been there Mm -hmm. that day or who who for whatever reason weren't in the building at the time that they probably should have been. And I can because I remember seeing a news story a couple years ago, how the night before there had been a Yankees game and then there had been a Monday night football game with the Giants. And so yeah. there were a ton of people who worked in the World Trade Center who were who'd overslept or like they were late going into work because they were out late at the game or watching the games. And like, I think about that a lot. And so um, but I've I, you know, so hearing your story is just really um I don't know. It's I mean, it's interesting. It's it's inspiring. It's encouraging. It's sad. It's all it's all of those feelings. Um, so but I'm curious, like for you in the in those kind of immediate days, the aftermath, like what was going through your mind at that time when you're sitting here thinking like like you're watching what's happening on TV and you're like, I, I work I work there. Yeah, I know the I know those people. I, I ride the elevator with them. What was that like for you? Yeah, you know, I didn't start really intensive therapy until I was 40 years old. So mm-hmm. I did not know about DABDA, but there was definitely denial. Like, what and So what is that? Dab, DABDA? I, oh, so it's like the five stages of grief. Oh, are, oh, oh, oh. Uh, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance, mm-hmm. I guess. And, you know, when I saw where the plane had hit, the tower, you know, my first thing was, gosh, this is going to be um, such a mess to clean up. Like, I just cleaned up the office. Like, I mean, clearly I was in some state of shock that, like, I'm thinking <laughs> that there's, you know, going to be any survival from, you know, the floors above, you know, and then watching, you know, the towers crumble. I, I still was not, like, understanding what was happening. Mm. So there was definitely that aspect of maybe, maybe nobody was up there, you know, (laughs) like maybe, maybe everybody's okay. Maybe, you know, and um, then the, the, the hardest thing for me was the just um, intense rage, overwhelming, um, just anger, you know, that I had not experienced as a person, because that's not who I am. So just having that, um, over, uh, kind of taking over. Um, and that lasted a really long time. And that made me even angrier because I don't like to be angry and, and that's not not my nature. And here I am and I'm just mad. You're angry Um, at being angry. Yeah. And and I was so mad at God, Mm. you know, just furious. Um, and that was the that was the season that like I don't I don't know about the bargaining and I don't know about the well I definitely know about the depression 
but the anger was the one that kind of overtook me for um, a really long time. Mm. Mm. And that was, um, I really grappled with that. Yeah. I, you know, until you just said that, that just now, I don't think I would have made that connection um, to those stages of grief and going through that as somebody who wasn't there, but was directly affected. But that, I mean, duh, it makes total sense. I just, I don't know why I'd never made that connection until you said it. So I, I am always curious about like logistics, like logistical things are things that I just, I, I, I want to know about. So what, I mean, you're, when did you get back to New York? How do you just, I mean, was there conversation amongst any other surviving colleagues? Like, I I guess we don't have jobs now. I don't know. I mean, I just like, you just go home, you pack up your stuff, you move back to Tarboro. What, what can you walk me through this? Cause I am very curious about that. Yeah. So one of the most painful things was not being up there. Yeah. And because I was like, I that's where I need to be. And of course, my family is like, we don't ever want you to go back. And so I when I once I finally got in touch with Stephen, I was like, you know, I need you to come down here with me. And so my mother and I on September 12th drove to the train station in Baltimore. And he had taken the train to Baltimore. And then we all came home and we spent a week in eastern North Carolina. And then we rented a car. And drove back. And mm. I remember driving over the George Washington Bridge and seeing the American flag hanging. And, you know, just thinking, I've heard about like Pearl Harbor and World War II and, you know, the assassination of JFK and, and Vietnam. And like, we're, I'm getting ready to be in some, some era that we're going to talk about post 9-11, you know, what that, what the world turned into. And, you know, New York was gray and it had always been like technicolor. And so we, um, my sister was living with me at the time too. So she had ridden back up with us. And I think the reason we had set the date was because there was a windows meeting. So I'm sure it was via telephone that we found out about this. But the windows, anybody that they could account for was going to meet at this restaurant on the Upper West Side and regroup. And when we got there, which must have been like September 19th, you know, the owner could barely speak. I mean, he was just a mess. And the um, HR person said, you know, we're we've got a space set up in Midtown where um, there's a hotline and there's a whatever, what was it, Lexus Nexus or Nexus Lexus yeah. list of everyone who worked there. And, you know, we need volunteers to answer the phones and account for people. And and so Stephen and I volunteered once for that. And it was just brutal because most people were calling to see if someone they knew had survived. And, you know, we had to say no as often as we had to say yes. So we were also told at that point to file for unemployment and that there were no next steps in terms of working at windows on the world. You know, right. There was no windows on the world. Yeah. There was, that didn't exist anymore. Yeah. So it was like, this is what we have for you. You have to file for unemployment and, and, and we can't tell you that in the next year there will be something because there won't. You right. Know, you can't um, build a 
500 person staffed restaurant, yeah. you know? Yeah. <laughs> so, and I talk about this a lot, but of course we didn't see people who died ever again, but we didn't see a lot of people who lived ever again either. Hmm. You know, people went home back to their respective countries or states, you know, see, like you mourned the friendships of people who were still alive, but just were not going to be in your world anymore. Right. Yeah. Cause I mean, you're right. Uh, it just, everything changed. It's interesting. I remember the day of, I remember the day of thinking our world is not going to be the same after this. Like I just, I just knew that we were living through a thing that we were going to talk about forever. Um, mm-hmm. Whereas, cause I remember when the first tower hit or when the first plane hit the first tower, I, everybody kind of thought like, wow, that's a really like freak accident. Like how does a plane just like crash into the tower? But I just, all of us, that was just immediately. But I mean, I remember standing there in our classroom. I was in my uh, earth science class and um, I was standing there and we were watching because we had the TV on when the first tower hit. And so the second tower hadn't been hit yet. And I mean, I, I remember standing there and I remember in the distance seeing the second plane coming. And I said, I think that's another plane. And somebody said, no, I don't think it is. And I said, no, that's another plane. And we all watched it hit. And just the entire class of we're all juniors in high school just screamed. And I will never forget that. And I remember at that moment saying out loud, we're being like somebody's attacking us. And I remember, and somebody was like, how do you know that? And I was like, that does, that's not an accident. Like now at this point, like we know this isn't an accident. And I just, but yeah, it's, that must have been so surreal driving over that bridge and seeing that. Cause you know, we saw all the images, you know, on TV of, of obviously what was happening in New York. I, but I remember like the week or two later, I had to go into the, into DC, into the city for something with my mom and driving by the Pentagon. It was like the same thing of just like this, what is, what is happening? What is, you know, but yeah, I'm, I'm just so interested in, I, I, I really am blown away by, by different people's stories and how they, how resilient humans are. Um, even despite the really, really awful hard things and how we each individually, you know, live our stories and, um, so at what point did you know, okay, I think we need to move back to Tarboro? And how did you come to that conclusion that you and Steven were going to leave New York and come back to Tarboro and live a very different life? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I was hell-bent on staying in New York. And so I immediately found a job opening um, a restaurant in a hotel in Times Square and working for a corporate restaurant group. And being absolutely miserable. Um, In all fairness, I could have gone to work anywhere and I probably would have been miserable. But this was particularly difficult. And I didn't like not working with my husband, which I found out, like, you know, pretty shortly on. Nobody wanted to hire a couple like we didn't. Our relationship was secret at um, Windows because it was a human resources issue. But once 9-11 happened, it was very, you know, clear that Stephen and I had been and, and were a, a couple. And so people wouldn't touch that. Mm. Um, and so he found a job at a, at a wine shop and I found a job opening this restaurant. Y'all were not married at the time, though, right? We were not. Okay. 
I lasted about five months and my parents were begging, come home, come home, y'all just take a break, take a breather. And we had lined up um, uh, harvest uh, in Burgundy in 2002, which we knew we were going to do. And so Stephen, you know, said, you're so unhappy. Um, your parents are giving us this gift of coming back and spending a summer and, you know, just relaxing. Like we couldn't do that anywhere else. Let's just go down there and love for the summer until we moved to France. And so we packed up our apartment, rented a U-Haul, drove home. I think it's like May, mid-May and lived um, with my dad and my stepmom until we moved to France. And it was in that, during that summer that the woman who owned on the square called me on my dad's landline and said, um, I heard you and your husband, we weren't married, owned windows on the world. That's, that's how Tarboro <laughs> works, right? Like, yeah. yeah, that was, that yeah, was a did. classic case of Tarboro <laughs> telephone. I heard, right. I heard Betty Ann told my sister that, you and your husband were the president of the United States. (laughs) That is is the kind of thing. Absolutely. The conversation that happens. I've been a part of those conversations and I go, uh, no, I don't think that that's right. (laughs) After I told her that we worked there, um, I said, look, you know, Francis, she said, I want to sell this restaurant and and I would love for y'all to buy it. And I said, we don't have two dimes to rub together. So thank you, but no, thank you. And um, my dad overheard the conversation and he went to look at it, found another guy that was interested in it. They bought it together. We moved to France and they closed on it the day we came back from harvest in October of mm. 02. And, you know, Stephen had told my dad, I'll give you an 18 month commitment, but I don't think this is going to work. Like a wine themed restaurant in Tarboro in 2002. Like, no way. And meanwhile, I was feeling a little bit like, wait a minute. I said I wanted to go back to New York. I did not say that I'm like, want to do this. But we were planning our wedding. And anyway, so we hit the ground running and opened this restaurant. And we turned the smoking section into a wine shop. (laughs) And about a month and a half before we got married, I got an email from two New York sommeliers saying, um, we need a beverage or a wine director for a new casino opening in Atlantic City. And I asked Stephen what he thought. He said, wow, this would help a lot. You know, it would suck. We would live apart, but it would be great for you. And it would be great to help us kind of get some stability. And so I went up to Atlantic City, interviewed. They offered me the job the next day. And the day after our wedding, Stephen drove me up to New Jersey. I cried the whole time. And dropped me off. And so I worked there for a year and a half while he stayed in Tarboro running a restaurant with my family. Oh, my. Talk about what a way to start a marriage. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, my God. And then um, while we were there, while I was living in New Jersey, I got pregnant with my daughter. And it was like, basically, hey, you're trying to resist something that the universe is going to make happen some way, some, somehow. So, you know, get on that train. And so that was when, you know, I, I when I came home in July of 04, nine months pregnant, that's kind of when I knew Tarboro was where we were going to be. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. It's almost like God was like, all right, look, I have been trying for quite some time to get you down here. At what point are you going to take me seriously? Right. Right. What, what more, what more do I need to show you? I mean, oh my goodness. Okay. Well, I love that. Uh, I can't imagine what that was like to be living in Atlantic City and your husband's in Tarboro running a restaurant with your family. (laughs) Bless him. I mean, I'm sure your family is awesome. (laughs) I just cannot imagine like if the roles were reversed, like in my situation, I'm like, wait, what? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I love it. I love it. But hey, I bet it made you stronger in the end. Um, And so then eventually you guys opened Tarboro Brewing. When did that happen? Why did that happen? How did how did you end up in that position? So we in 2006-ish, everybody said the restaurant's too small. We can't get a table. You know, y'all need to expand. You need to expand. You need to expand. And so we bought a 10,000 square foot building right down the street, you know, a couple blocks from, from on the square uh, in hopes of moving on the square to this huge building. And that was in July of 08, right before the market crashed. Yeah. Similar to what happened when you graduated. Yeah. Nobody wanted to invest in a restaurant, period, much less one in Edgecombe County. And here we are sitting on this massive building. And while charming, it was in major disrepair. And yeah, so we just were there. And right. um, trying to keep the small restaurant that everybody had told us was too small afloat. And now we have a mortgage on a, on a big, big building. And, you know, we had been following Duck Rabbit in Farmville. And in 2010, when Mother Earth opened, you're like, you know what? Tarboro needs a brewery. Like, there are plenty of people who didn't come into the restaurant who lived in Tarboro, who lived in our county. And so, um, you know, I went to school and church with this gentleman who had left Tarboro when he was in the ninth grade, go up to boarding school outside of Philadelphia. And he had ended up becoming a brewer and then ultimately becoming the director of quality assurance at Yards, which is one of Billy's biggest and oldest breweries. And so I said, Hey, like Franklin, I can drink beer, but I can't make beer. <laughs> would, you, would you partner with us? And he's like, ha ha, go ahead and raise the money. Cause it's going to take a lot for that building. And if you can raise it, I'll think about it. And so one of the hardest things we ever did was raising capital. We, we'd never had to do that, you know, on the squares bank loan. Right. Um, and did all the things that I did not know I would ever know how to do, which is get bylaws written and articles of incorporation and raise money and form a board. And all of a sudden, um, you know, this became something that I knew I couldn't do on the square and this, right? Like this was, this was a big, uh, a big job. And also it, it wasn't good for Steven. It wasn't good for our family anymore either. Like, for Steven and I to be in that restaurant together all day, all night, and then come home and have no like separation. Like this would be, this was clearly in the best interest um, of everyone. And so opened the doors in 2016, three years after we'd written the business plan. I mean, it took us a long time to, to raise the money and get the construction. And, you know, now seven years in, it's one of the coolest things I've ever done because I didn't know I could do what I'm doing. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But I love it. And I love 
seeing how it's a like the restaurant brings a lot of people from outside of Tarboro, and that's wonderful. Um, but the brewery kind of is like a hub for Tarboro. Mm. Um, so it's a, it's a community space as much as it is a brewery. Yeah. Well, I love that you said that about how one of the it's been one of the most difficult things you've had to, you've done, but you now know what you're capable of, like something that it's pushed you outside of this comfort zone. And I love when I hear stories about people that that do that and, you know, go scared and um, which kind of leads me to my my next question. That's, you know, you eventually sat down to write your memoir and to tell your story. And um, as somebody who is as of this recording, currently writing her memoir. That is my manuscript is due in less than a month. Um, it has been one of the most difficult, <laughs> like challenging, uh, I don't even know how else to describe it. Um, things that I've ever done and I've birthed children and I've, you know, been nearly bankrupt and I've done a lot of things. I've experienced <laughs> the, you know, the death of my mother. Uh, and you know, so it's, um, but it is, it is a, it's this, I almost liken it to, I think what I'm going to, this is just the, the analogy I'm kind of coming up with is I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to go stand in the middle of Times Square with no clothes on. And I think I'm just going <laughs> to stand there and just, just see what happens. Like that's in many ways, that's what I feel like. And so I am curious if that is also what you felt like. <laughs> like, hi, I'm going to go just take my clothes off and go stand in the middle of this very bustling metropolis. And um, that's that's what it feels like to write a memoir because it's the mo it's so vulnerable. And it is also because it's like, you know, if you write a book that's like a business book or like a how to or something, it's like somebody tells you, oh, like, I didn't like that book because I didn't agree with it or blah, 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 blah. But like if they tell you they don't like your memoir, you're like, this is my life. Like this is right. That means you don't like me. I know. It's incredibly <laughs> personal. So, uh, yeah. Oh, man, it's so hard. OK, so tell us about that that process. And um, so obviously the book came out on September 11th of 2021. So on the 20th anniversary. It's called Life After Windows. Um, such a good title and beautiful cover. Um, and I absolutely 100% judge a book by its cover. And so I'm already like very much uh, said to my publisher, I'm like, y'all better design a really good cover because I am very, very judgmental when it comes to book covers. So we'll see what happens when I get to that process. But in any, in any event, um, I saw in an interview that you'd said that this book really took you 20 years to write in a lot of ways. But um, at what point did you say, okay, I'm actually going to sit down and I'm going to write this? Well, so I had a meeting with a publisher in, I don't know, 2012, 2013, that a friend of mine had got me in touch with. And the the phone call lasted about two minutes. He said, nobody cares about you. Nobody cares about memoirs. Why do you think anybody would buy this book? And I was so like flabbergasted. I, I, I didn't respond. I, I don't think I could speak. And when I hung up the phone, I went dormant. Mm. Like, I, I was like, right. Uh, who do I think I am? Why would anybody want to read this? And I will say... I want to read it. Just saying for the record, okay? <laughs> I will say for anyone listening, 
when you get that kind of feedback, please know that is the reflection of the person giving it, not a reflection of you. Right. That's just terrible feedback. Um, I got I got that feedback, too, by the way. So I think I mean, that's just yeah, it doesn't serve anyone. And like what ultimately happened is I went on a women's leadership conference in 19 uh, fall of 19. And there was a woman on the bus who'd written a um, nonfiction book on, on Napa specifically. And she didn't know me from Adam, but I was asking her about that. And she said, are you interested in writing? And I said, well, I have this memoir. I have the name. I have like words, gazillions of words in a Google doc, but like, I don't know. I've got a daughter going to college. I don't want to like spend a lot of money. And this woman without having any reason was like, you need to write this book. She was like, you need to get on a timeline. In two years, it's going to be the 20 year anniversary. There's no better time to release that. Hmm. And she would text me texts of encouragement. Hey, are you doing this? She'd email me uh, the self publishing route versus the publishing route. I spoke to three editors who ghosted me or two editors who ghosted me my email. I sent them the manuscript and they just didn't respond after Mm. we talked and everything. And so the third person I finally got in touch with an editor in California, she got back to me and she was like, this is great. Let's do it. And I was like, at this point, this is March of 2021. Yeah. So, um, I didn't get her final edits back until August 1st, 2021. And then I had 10 days to go over her edits, make mine. And then we went like it was the books did not arrive. We were planning on selling them at my stepmom's store on September 11th. The books arrived the night of the 10th. Oh my gosh. My stepmother was freaking out. (laughs) I was like, it says they're coming. I mean, they're coming. <laughs> yeah. So um, anyway, it was really between March and, and August where I was in that. Well, actually not true. She asked me when I sent it to her in March not to not to look at it again. So, yeah, but it was me just getting into this Google Doc and writing over 20 years. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Wow. And then her pushing me to fill in the gaps. Wow. Wow. Well, it's interesting um, that, uh, well, one, that timeline absolutely stresses me out. So it makes me feel a little bit better. Um, So I just want to say right now, like you are my hero at this moment, because I cannot imagine that I just, I'm just like, how did you, how did you do that? Um, but I, I'm curious, and I, I ask this question for a very specific reason. So writing it and publishing it at the 20-year mark, did that feel – what did that feel like? And the reason I ask this, and this is this is why I ask this, is – so I've been in, you know, the, I'm in the throes of writing right now. I'm in the manuscript process. And just last month, or as of we're recording this, so November 15th, 2002, was the 20th anniversary of the passing of my mom, which is a big, large portion of my story. And so being in the the moment and the time of having to relive 
conjure up all of the feelings and the things over and things that I haven't dealt with or things that I didn't even ask my dad about 20 years ago or in the last 20 years that I've had to now like learn and find out and the amount of things I'm learning and, and, and uncovering, um, through this process, um, made the 20th anniversary of her passing feel different is the best way I can describe it. Um, it felt, it felt, uh, a lot, it felt big in a lot of ways, just because 20 years sounds like a really long time. <laughs> it just sounds long. Um, I also don't feel like I'm old enough to be, have been that have that be 20 years ago or whatever but it apparently it i am <laughs> mm -hmm. um you know so i i think it just it brings up a lot of emotions it brings up a lot of feelings it, it, all the things so i'm curious like for you was did you experience something similar because i think it's such a unique it's just a unique lived experience yeah you know um that day was so anticipated by me and um, there were so many, you know, that day really was a, an unbelievably magical day for me in terms of the support that the community came out and, and gave me on that day. I mean, it was it was truly overwhelming, mm. unbelievable. And so I think at the end of the day, I was incredibly tired, but also like I did something with this. You know, I took a, a grief that only, you know, only a handful of the world experienced in terms of, you know, I wasn't a victim, but I lost people and I lost a place. Like, you know, talk about that when you lose people, you can often go back to the place where you remember them the, in the best light and you can be in that place and it, it makes you feel closer to that person. But with 9-11, there was no place either. Mm. So, like, I was mourning the actual, the hub. Um, and I took that grief and I wrote about it. And it's out there now. And maybe somebody will read it and feel a connection mm. in whatever their grief may be. And so there was, there was healing in that, but I didn't know that that day because nobody had read it yet. You know, like, right, right. <laughs> that day was just like, Oh, it's happening. Like I didn't know it was going to happen <laughs> and yeah. it's happening. And then the days and the, and the weeks and the months after were when like the DMS and the emails and the texts came in and we're like, I I can share that, you know, people shared so many personal things with me that I felt so honored by. Mm. Um, and that was, you know, I think, we, you know, you mentioned resilience. Like there's so much resilience in this world and we don't hear about it all the time. And when we do, it just is like powerful. Yeah. Yeah, it really is. Wow. Um, and as this is just, uh, I, I'm so grateful for you being so honest and open and, and raw and sharing your piece of a very large story that changed the world. Um, and, uh, I, I just, I can't wait to see what this book continues to do to keep 
the memory of that day alive and also the resilience of people who experienced it in really intimate and personal ways, um, I think is really honoring. And so I'm really grateful for your work in that. And I think it's awesome that you um, ended up back in your hometown because God was just like... (laughs) Look, we're going to do this. We're going to have more kids with Z's in their names and it's going to be great. <laughs> um, okay, well, but now, um, and for the listeners, I will have, obviously, um, Inez's uh, info in the show notes along with uh, links t- uh, to her website. And if you are in or around the Tarboro area, which is like a, not a sentence that a lot of people say all the time. Um, <laughs> but if you want to make a road trip, a little day trip um, to Tarboro, you can go visit On The Square, um, Tarboro Brewing Company, and uh, go support them. And uh, just I just love it. Before we go. Um, this is the portion of the show where I just ask a few questions. So, um, Inez, what is the last thing that made you laugh? I think I've laughed on the show. I mean, so that's long. the whole point of this yeah, show, well, but you, you know, <laughs> um, got my son who is 15. He's a freshman in high school. He's hysterical and he just <laughs> says really funny things today. He was telling me that he has a wrestling match this afternoon and he's like, yeah. And guess what? It's not a rule that I have to be at school if I want to wrestle tonight. And I was like, <laughs> really? <laughs> uh, <laughs> I don't know if I believe you. <laughs> oh my goodness. I love it. But that I, is hilarious. I also laugh at like, he believes it. He like believes that I'm going to believe what he says. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Kids are kids are funny, man. I love funny kids of all ages. I, mean, I think my kids are really funny. So I love that your son is really funny. Um, I am going to I won't name names um, because as when I'm doing this, I'm going to have to ask for forgiveness and permission later. <laughs> but uh, one of my really good friends from church, they have a couple of kids and um, their youngest or their current youngest as of this recording, they're actually having another baby today. Um, so I'm also on baby watch. Their middle child is arguably one of the cutest children I've ever seen in my entire life. Like I it's he's not mine. And I just am like, I love him so much. And I just think he is the cutest thing. Anyway, one of my favorite things about this time of year when we're recording is, you know, Christmas concerts. I just think it's like the purest form of childhood is like adorable, like Christmas performances and, you know, holiday concerts and things like that. Anyway, so dad goes to kids school and he is two, by the way, he'll be three in January. And um, was doing a Christmas concert. And the context of what I'm about to play is that uh, the teacher had asked the parents to sing along with the kids. Okay, so that's the context of what I'm about to play. So I'm hitting play now. Miss Cal- 
Kelly, I did not hear my dad singing on Jingle Bells. Okay. And it's like very passive aggressive. It's like, it's like, look, I'm sure he was singing, but I didn't hear my dad singing on Jingle Bells. Right, right, right. <laughs> Kids keep us honest, man. Oh, I love it. Okay. Anyway, that's just, so that's the last thing that made me laugh was I've watched that video at least 15 times now um, because it makes me laugh every single time. Um, okay. <laughs> Okay. All right. So, so good. Okay. Um, so my second question is obviously a different direction. What is the last thing that made you cry? Now, I guess the trick to this question is it could be happy tears or cry laughing, but you can take it whichever direction you want to. Yeah. So it it was actually last night I was at the brewery and one of my friends who, uh, she's like a new friend. I've, I've met her fairly recently, but she leads the HOPE program at our high school, which is for high-risk children. And it can't be an easy job, right? Like those kids are, you know, they're in a certain part of the school with no windows and, you know, they get bussed in with security and and their metal detectors. And it's just, it's got to be an incredibly hard job. And um, I was talking to her last night and, um, she just started um, in on this like really kind praise of me. Mm. <laughs> and I just started bawling. I was like, oh my God, what are you doing? I was like, you are the, you are the person like, you know, it, it was just, it was really kind. And I, I was taken off guard and, and I started crying. Mm. Mm. Oh, that's really sweet. That's really sweet. Sometimes I love when when God puts those those people in your life to say the thing or the do the thing that you need right there at that moment. And it's so unexpected and really sweet. Okay, and then my last question is, um, how do you choose joy? You know, I do choose it with human connection. And that is smiling and speaking to people whether there are these two gentlemen who walk up and down my street every morning, I guess they're in their late seventies. And um, every time I ride by them, they say, has anybody told you that Jesus loves you today? And um, so now I've started seeing it. I've started saying it first and then we try to say it at the same time. Um, I love it. Building people up, like sharing kind words, giving compliments, smiling, um, speaking to people that may not be spoken to or are appreciated, saying thank you. All that gives me great, great joy. Mm, so good. So good. Um, Inez, this has been uh, just wonderful. And uh, I'm going to call you Annie. Annie. Yeah. Uh, we're friends now, Annie. Um, <laughs> so I am just so grateful for you and for the, um, like I said, the, the honesty of, of you sharing. And um, thanks for being here. Thank you, Molly. The pleasure was all mine. I hope you loved this conversation with Inez. She is just an incredible human being. And I hope you go pick up her memoir, Life After Windows. I would love to know what you loved about this episode. If there was something in particular that you connected with or you loved, let us know on social media. You can find me at Still Being Molly or at Can I Laugh Pod on Instagram and Facebook. Be sure to tune in next week where my guest is Carmen Black, who is the founder of Half United. We had such a fun conversation and I know you're going to love her. 
be sure to head on over to whatever app you're listening to this podcast on and click that subscribe or follow button. And would you take a moment to leave a review? Leaving a review really does help me to know what you're liking and how the show is impacting you. Thank you so much for listening. And as always, thank you to to the team at Third Wheel Media for producing the show. And for you, I hope something this week makes you laugh till you cry. Bye.